Welcome to another season of Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Rocher. Now, true believers, you know that since the very beginning, the Marvel Universe has been influenced by a variety of cultures. You know, Roman, Greek, Norse, and even Haitian and Egyptian mythologies and religions. More recently, the nationality, cultural backgrounds, ethnicities of writers and artists working for Marvel has expanded, leading to more widespread cultural influences, storytelling, folklore on the Marvel Universe. Now, Marvel's international influence is nothing new, with Marvel books reaching fans around the world, with things like the Marvel UK imprint and a myriad of books like the X-Men and Arrow being translated in other languages. But... With technology shifting and the advent of digital comics, there has been even more access to more readers in more places around the world. Marvel has not just become the world outside our window, but a window to our world, reflecting global culture and talent. This season of Marvel's Voices showcases the creators who have cultures or backgrounds or literally live around the world who write color, and letter your favorite stories. And this week, I am uber excited because one of my personal favorite trailblazers in the comics industry is going to be here with us. That's right. Our first guest is letterer Janice Chang. Janice has been in the comics industry since the 1970s and has lettered for almost all of Marvel's big characters. A daughter of Chinese immigrants, Janice became an activist in New York City, inspired by her sister Faye, a playwright and a poet, and writer-artist Larry Hama, who was actually a guest on Marvel's Voices last season. You know, with a background in fine arts, her implementation of art and language is the thread that strings together her decades-long career. I am so excited to have you because we talk about the writer and we talk about the penciler. And sometimes we talk about the colorist or the cover artist. But we don't get to the letterer. (laughs) Try reading the book without us. I love that, right? Because I always talk about (laughs) comics being this team sport. you got a writer, you got an editor, you've got a penciler, a colorist, and you have the letterer who provides this all-important text for our favorite stories. Like, unless you have a silent comic, like uh, Silent Interlude written by Larry Hama, there is always going to be this need for words. And there's this amazing artistic skill to size and placement and um, usage of even, you know, exclamation points and fonts that make a comic what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, a quick thing about comic lettering, the easiest way to explain is it's a silent soundtrack to the whole story. So talk about growing up in New York, uh, especially as a first generation American from a Chinese background. So um, what happened was my parents met, well, <laughs> the part of arranged marriage. That's how people do it. My husband and I, we're the first generation where we picked each other. So <laughs> that's radical. But anyway, um, after the war, my father served, you know, for America. And they allowed uh, servicemen to bring home, bring over war brides. Up to there, 
there was hardly any immigration from China because in 1882, uh, the, America enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act. So basically, unless you were a professional, say, you know, academic or in the banking industry or whatever, you couldn't bring your family here. So you created generations of sojourners, people who went abroad to earn money, send it back home and start families and then leave again. So basically that was um, true for my grandfather and my father. He came to this country was when he was 13. But anyway, getting back to um, language, you know, when my sister Faye went to school, she didn't speak English because we spoke Chinese at home. And uh, in kindergarten, they would have to do like sign language, like come here, go there. And eventually she picked up, you know, um, being proficient in speaking and writing. And I think that has a lot to do with her becoming a writer and playwright uh, of note because of the ability to communicate between cultures and um, bring an understanding of where we come from. But um, comics was one of those things written in English. You know, you would read everything. You know, the public library, fortunately, was like three blocks away. We'd go there like once or twice a week in the summer almost every day and borrow books and read. So I remember early comics were like in newspapers, like Dondi, you know, in the Daily News. And then Sunday, they would have all, all the colored comics for us to read. And then my cousins were big comic readers. So my dad had to go to California, and then he brought home this giant stack of books for us. <laughs> so, you know, I tell people, we even read the back of a cleanser can because it's in English. So, you know. Part of our journey as a firstborn here is assimilation. So part of that, a big part is language, right? And um, understand the cultural mores of the new, uh, land, new country. So we were like that bridge uh, generation. So along with your siblings, you're assimilating and trying to understand American culture and language. You know, how did you start working in one of the biggest pop culture mediums comics. You know, my background's fine arts. I studied in high school. My friend Andre and I tried out for music and art. We got in, but it was like an hour away in one direction by train. It was like, oh, forget it. We'll go to a local high school. So, <laughs> so we were on the honor track. And um, when we had to declare our majors, I declared art, but they ran out of classes for me. So senior year, I just did independent study. So how I got into comics was um, I needed a job in college. You know, I was going to Hunter. I started when I was 16. And I, <laughs> I, was, I looked so young, nobody would hire me. Because at that time, kids could work when they were 14. They wouldn't hire me. So I had no money when I showed up at school. Meanwhile, my sisters were working. They had like three years of work, you know, savings to get them through. And are you the, are you the baby? I'm the third. Uh, I had a brother. So there was four of us. So we all ended up in Hunter College, and um, that's where my older sister Faye came active with the anti-war movement and uh, organizing for third world studies. So like ducks in a row, when we got there, we just like embraced the same activities. So one year, all three of us uh, were members of the um, student senate. Oh wow! And what year? And around what year was this for folks to? Uh, seventy three, seventy four. I started seventy two. 
So it, that was just such a time of transition. Like, you know, the world is kind of finding its way after the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Well, you know, the U.S. is pulled out of Vietnam at the time, but the conflict is still going on. It's like 1975, plus the ramifications of all of that with folks coming home from the war. Oil prices are skyrocketing. Not to mention, there were a lot of things going on in the city of New York during this time. Yeah. So um, from there, you know, Faye moved into uh, community organizing down in Chinatown. She and Larry Hama and a group of fellow artists and writers formed the Basement Workshop. And the idea was like to bring uh, culture, you know, like art out of the galleries and into the community. So you see a lot of the murals that were done during that time period. It was done through um, City Arts Workshop. And um, there was a group in the Low East Side called Charis. They built geodesic domes, you know, Buck, Buckminster Fuller's uh, geodesic domes at events. So they all joined together, Lowy Side and Chinatown called the Seven Lows. So basement was part of that. So we got to work with everybody in the community. So that was our turf, the Lowy Side and Chinatown. So how it progressed was we put, picked up a lot of community struggles with democratic rights. So, you know, we said, well, the civil rights happened in the 60s in, you know, black communities. It's got to catch up in our community in the 70s. So there was a lot of, um, well, the first major struggle was Confucius Plaza, where they built this high rise, which was, um, I think it was, it was supposed to be like um, different income levels could live there. But they, so they had knocked down like three blocks of tenements to house this building. But the irony was um, they didn't hire anyone from the community. All the labor came from outside. So we said, you know, if you're going to build this giant thing in our community with federal money, you owe us jobs. So, you know, different sections of the community organized, and we shut that site for a month. Wait, a month? We stopped the construction. That's how I met my husband. (laughs) Your career, right? So you started in comics and then you leave for a little bit um, mm-hmm. to do this work and infuse art into the movement. So, you know, five years goes by um, doing this incredible work uh, and obviously getting some wins. And clearly you didn't leave too far from the community because you're still kind of listing some names that worked in comics still. Um, mm-hmm. I, Larry Hama is, you know, both of you are still in the game. So talk to me about, one, why did you come back to comics? And then I want to talk about, like, what your job is. I don't think people truly understand how essential lettering is to comics. So Stanley is quoted as saying, the most successful letters, you don't notice it because we're not impinging on the story or the art. So it's like, basically, we agreed to be invisible to do our jobs. But it's so difficult to do well, you know, to have the correct flow. And you've talked about, you know, the fact that you and do you, I don't know if you still do it because a lot of people have gone to digital bubbles. But, you know, you've talked about the fact that you drew because you have a background in fine arts. You didn't just let her like mm-hmm. you drew the bubbles. And there's almost like an arithmetic to the way you placed bubbles to ensure it didn't impede. Can you talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. that and kind of what goes into that? Because folks have read your work and they don't understand like how much time you've spent and how much you honor the artist's work. 
it's like having a background in art. I know what it takes to create the art. So um, the main thing is uh, you have to preserve the visual storytelling by not covering crucial parts of the of the panel. Um, my pet peeve is when letters cover a light source. There's a lamp. You don't cover it because it's lighting the whole panel, right? It's like filmmaking because the colors will come in and, and have it lit because right now we're working in layers and I'll get, um, if a book is late, I'll get like uh, thumbnails, which I have to swap out for the finished ink. And then sometimes if I have time, I can swap out for the final color art because I need to know the color palette, like for sound effects or, or you know, caption fills. You know, it's got has to be harmonious. Uh, so when I'm looking at a panel, you know, when I'm looking at a page of the letter, I read the art directions, see what's going on. And then I look at the art and see if the artist read the art directions. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, Sometimes they swap they characters. Sometimes they swap the character's position because we have to um, go from uh, left to right. And then we'll have the first speaker on the far right. And it's like, what am I supposed to shoot a long pointer behind somebody or through their head, you know, to get there? It's like, so it's a lot of... Um, figuring out the logistics of how it should flow. Um, so, you know, all these little things that I know what it should look like in hand lettering, I do it digitally. But that's really incredible, like, just to understand that you were able to take your handwritten work and create a font so you could step it up to still keep true to your form digitally. That's pretty amazing. As an artist, you, know, you take on the creative challenges. It was like part of the course. <laughs> Learn it. I, it's like, but you know, when I work for different companies, I request certain fonts to be used. It's like, okay, fine, whatever. But I'll still use um, my sound effect fonts to do the sound effects. So how was it for you entering the industry? And like, honestly, you know, what made you stay? Well, the first time in was just to dip my toe in and see what it was. But, you know, I had questions about what being an Asian American was in this country. It was foremost in my mind. I had to settle that before, you know, I could settle anything else. Because you know, during, <laughs> during the whole Vietnam War, you would turn the news on every night. And they were killing people that looked like me without second thought. You know, napalm, fire, bullets, bombs. So it's like uh, that. That's what drove a lot of us to organizing into the streets kind of thing. If I didn't go through the experience of, you know, the community organizing or political activism, I couldn't have navigated my way back in. You know, it's like what's unspeakable, you know, the understood what's there, that guys had more rights than women, right? And certain women had more rights than you. But, you know, it's like... Uh, I've seen enough of life to say, this is not live or die, but I just want to earn a living. So you, you come back, you're at Marvel, you're in the bullpen, mm -hmm. you're, you're one of a few. And this is like an interesting time at Marvel, right? Like this is the mid 70s, late 70s. A lot of characters are being created into what is like the wild 80s. You know, the first time in, I thought the guys were like, it's like a guild system. You know, somebody 
gets you in, teaches you the skill. But then I thought the guys are so unenlightened. You know, I said, well, there's a women's movement going on. Don't they read the newspaper? It was like, <laughs> but um, when I interned at uh, Marvel in the 70s, Danny Crespi was my mentor. And a lot of the guys in the bullpen, uh, like Mori Kiyomoto, Jack Abel, George Russo's, they were a generation that came out of the, the Depression into World War II. So by the time I met them, they were family men, and they had a real understanding of what's important in the world. So I was treated very well there. You know, I was respected and stuff. So when I came back to uh, Marvel in 1980, Danny Crespi was still head of the bullpen. And the guys were still there. <laughs> so, oh, they did you know, not I, leave. No, no, they did not leave. So what I have to say is uh, what was great about Marvel in Manhattan was we welcomed diversity. So if you could do the job, you got the job. And I found out um, from Larry that, and from my friend Jack Morelli, who was a staff letterer and a, then a freelancer, he said, uh, art and design had a program where a mentorship program where uh, they were bringing kids from the high school, you know, to check out Marvel or Neil Adams studio to see if they wanted to go in that direction. And that's where Dennis came in from art and design, Michael Davis. And um, so in our bullpen, it represented the city. There were all kinds of people. So, you know, the people who worked together in the 80s and 90s. We're still all really close. We share that positive experience. And, you know, it was like, because I freelanced in the beginning, uh, I would come in three days a week, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, pick up work, drop off work, pick up work, drop off work, pick up my paycheck, and then you know, keep going that way. So every time I would show up, if there was a new person, they would say, hey, this is so-and-so, you know, they're an assistant or they're working the bulletin. It's like, hey, how are you doing? And everyone ended up working together. So. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like um, at Marvel, you know, I worked for DC and Marvel at that time. And DC was at Rockefeller Center, I think. So, you know, they had, they were very corporate. There was a whole protocol. Somebody had to get you in, this and that. Um, and then there was Marvel. It was like, <laughs> yeah, I'd rather work for Marvel. <laughs> That's where the fun was. You know, we had Marie Severin. We had Flo's. <laughs> Steinberg. You know, we had all these, we had Louise, and then, you know, you know, people just got along. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't an issue of your age, your sex, your nationality. You can f do the work. You know, you're okay. So, you know, what's a big deal? <laughs> Y'all were kind of pioneers. Like, a lot of the Asian American artists, a lot of the Black artists, a lot of what is now considered Latinx or Latino artists were kind of pioneers, even though, you know, it was a family because you were now the names and the faces that people associated with comics in a very different way. So in, in a way, that family atmosphere, that open door really changed the face of who could make comics. It's still working on who mm -hmm. could be a superhero. <laughs> But who could make comics was really, really evolving. You know, talk to me about this idea of working on these stories and how you've seen the stories evolve. But also, like, it takes a lot of fortitude to be attached to some of these stories, understanding there's a larger impact. As a freelancer, you know, when you accept the 
the job. You deliver what the client needs. It really doesn't matter how you feel sometimes. You know, it's like if you disagree, okay, you bite your bullet. But, you know, it's like um, when I was younger, I would have said, oh, no, I'm not going to, I refuse to do it. But, you know, as you get older, it's like you have to participate to make a change. You can't, like, criticize from the sidelines. And um, if me being like a, a, <laughs> a stone to keep the door open, fine, you know. Because when I learned that Jean was writing Shang-Chi, it's like, oh, I'm so happy. You know, actually, I've written to him and say, I'm so happy. You write him as a full person instead of a stereotype. All right. I, I love that you mentioned Jean, uh, a.k.a. Jean Lewin Yang, who has actually been on the Marvel's Voices podcast and written for Marvel's Voices Identity 2021. Uh, anyone out there listening, like you definitely should check out his work, including his current run on Shang-Chi out right now. Because, you know, the stereotype of Asian men, are they they're emasculated or they're half the people? It's like my husband goes, damn, there's so many good looking Asian people, why aren't they beating men? It's a racism that they're invisible for some reason, that they don't count. It's like, at that time, it's like there were so few Asian American creators in the industry. So it's like, okay, you know, I know it's wrong for me on principle, but then you have to be there to start opening the door. So what's really sweet is like, I meet a lot of Asian American creators who you know, saw my name on the credit line, saw Larry Hama, saw Jim Lee, and they said, well, there's a place for us in the industry if you three are there. So, you know, if that's what it took to, like, bite my tongue and do it, that it was worth it, you know, or I wouldn't be here to see a change, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it takes it's persistence and, you know, um, it's not, not only persistence, but... Um, it's like you have to have um, foresight, you know, what lies ahead. And, and it's like struggle every day. Yeah, you deal with it because you wake up to another day where you may find the solution or solve it that day. But um, anyway, <laughs> that's, that's my little thing about Shang-Chi. The great thing about this is that, you know, we love to give people insight, right? And you've mentioned this idea of hand lettering and digital and moving up, which is something really similar to a lot of artists that we've seen that are still doing work from the 70s and 80s is that they have that same mentality like I love this there, there's there's a tone in your voice that says oh no I love this job I'm I am going to keep doing this what is it about that like why like why do you why do you love this job well, we so could, much we could take Stan Lee as an example right <laughs> Stan Lee is the ultimate example he's like every medium I'm gonna learn it all all of it. <laughs> it's like, but you know, um, the the joy of working in the industry are your teammates, you know, your friends, your colleagues, and your collaborators. And um, given the nature of my work, I think I pretty much work with everyone in the industry in all different companies. What made me stay, right? Part of it was like I had to earn a living, and my premise was like I should be respected as a professional. I'm earning a living. And I'm not giving anything else up. Thank you. And if those are terms you can't work with, I can't work with you. You you being there and kind of having that fortitude and keeping through, like, 
you got to see some dope stuff happen. Like you got to work with Marvel Edge. You end up working with, you know, Chris Cooper and Bobby Chase. You, you know, you kept going and like ended up working with Milestone. Like for those who are kind of looking at the industry now, um, because it's interesting when you look back at history and you don't have mm -hmm. the perspective, like even you talking about Marvel being a family is something that I have gotten from every single person that I know that, that worked yeah. in that era in the 80s and 90s but when they look back particularly at the stories outside of perspective and that's and that's what I love about having these conversations they get a different image of what they think was happening because they think they understand corporations but Marvel was different for you and this is kind of like just kind of wrapping up like how have you seen the industry evolve and where do you think the industry is going just from your perspective and seeing the ups and downs? You know, um, people always need um, creative projects, process. It's always going to be there. And, you know, when we went digital, there were pros and cons, but actually kicked open the door for more creators. You know, people soon started to do web comics. Uh, now we have Kickstarter and other things like Patreon. You know, you can support our artists. So the opportunities actually have exploded for creators that way. And then I remember it was like uh, <laughs> when comics went digital, the people were moaning. It's like, oh, print is dead. Now people still want to hold those books. And the pandemic uh, <laughs> sort of like, was beneficial to our industry because, you know, demand for graphic novels and printed material went up 40% during um, that time period and still escalating. And, you know, it's like when I started doing comics, it was sort of like, quote, the black sheep art. It was like, who wants to do comics when you can do fine arts or something? Now we're legitimate thanks to CGI, right? Also, we're heroes because we work in the industry. And I have to laugh because, like, yeah, we've always been here. If you talk to anyone in the industry, they know what it takes to stay there and to actually do the work. Their head is not like bloated. <laughs> you really have to want to do the work. You know, it's phenomenal when you look at the art, um, how detailed the color artist is coming in. And it's like, there's a lot of heart and soul poured into everything they touch and we touch so that, um, when you said, how long are we going to stay? As long as we can create or do something meaningful. So I, I got to work with uh, Joe Sinnott and Stan Lee uh, on the Spider-Man strip for King Feature, the Sunday and the Daily strip. So at that point, I was still like <laughs> struggling to be legitimate in terms of uh, my creds in front of uh, a lot of people, especially guys or younger people's eyes. And when I got to that point, I said, <laughs> first I have to tell you, when we hand lettering books, they would come like 22 pages, 4864 were like big specials. So the Spider-Man strips were these TV little cut paper <laughs> and nobody wanted to letter them. It's like, why would you letter one, these little strips when you can letter a whole book? So I tell people, it's sort of like the fruitcake in the family. Right. So it's passed on from a Marvel letter to another Marvel letter. And you hold the fruitcake, you add more brandy, you know, like take a slice, whatever, a little pinch and keep it alive. So by the time it came to me, 
that was the last uh, job that was paying for a hand letterer. But then I got to work with Stanley and Joe Sinnott, and I said, yeah, I'm back. Janice, you're amazing. And I love the fact that people are now going to start looking at that block for your name and understanding why letterers are so important. Thank you for coming in. And thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and and to the audience. Y'all, I am so happy that we finally were graced with the presence of Janice Chang on Marvel's Voices. And in addition to this season's main guest, we have some special treats, including guest hosts, mini interviews with artists like Damian Scott, who was featured in Marvel's Voices Number 1 and Marvel's Voices Legacy, and Nardstar, who are part of Walmart's exclusive Marvel's Voices Artist Capsule Collection as well as segments featuring Marvel Stormbreakers, a program that spotlights the best up-and-coming artists in the comic book industry. To learn more about the Stormbreakers, I spoke with John Michael Innes, not just my friend and colleague, but the Director of Talent Relations and Recruitment here at Marvel. John Michael Ennis. What is going on? Welcome back to Marvel's Voices. Thank you for having me back. Always a pleasure. I mean, look, uh, you are one of the few people that I get to talk to literally almost every single day of my life. Uh, And for the most part... I'm so sorry for you. What? Whatever. It's a delight. You're amazing. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, though, you know... I have this like really cool title. I get to say you're director of talent relations and pub recruitment here at Marvel. For those who may not be familiar with all of those words mean put together. uh, Can you talk a little bit about what does a director of talent relations and pub recruitment do? Sure. Uh, So essentially, you know, obviously Marvel works with a ton of talent, freelance talent, exclusive talent that we have. And um, really, that is the lifeblood of uh, the Marvel creative engine. Where I come in is more in the intersection between Marvel's talent and all of the other lines of business within the building. You know, one of the things I love highlighting, though, is that you're also an artist, right? So, you know, talk to me about how that impacts your work, because you are you are looking at a lot of art. That is the most fun part, I think. The thing that I've enjoyed the most is doing portfolio reviews and and giving feedback to people. It really scratches the itch for me. Um, As an artist, being able to talk to someone about the importance of line weights from panel to panel and composition and the flow of uh, the eye when when a reader is looking at comic art. These are just the very nerdy, uh, very art-centric things that I love to talk about. I love that you love your job um, because you get to do some really cool work, uh, including what we're going to talk about today, is you get to work with the Stormbreakers. Uh, Yes. Besides, you know a very, very cool um, thing in which has been uh, associated with Thor. 
Uh, what is a stormbreaker? A stormbreaker is um, someone who, through their art, has kind of broken through the noise of everything that's out there and risen to a level that we at Marvel think is really exciting and that we want to invest our energy into. Uh, so the Stormbreaker program is meant to put a spotlight on um, a group of artists that through a number of different programs um, internally and with other partners, we try to raise their profile and make fans aware of them, um, get them excited about the projects that they're working on, and message that to retailers as well. Make sure retailers understand that, hey, these are the artists that Marvel is taking a real interest in and going to be investing a lot of energy into. It is a program that is really exciting because it is based just purely on great work, great artwork, and uh, the folks that we think say something about Marvel. And honestly, like this isn't the first time Marvel has invested uh, in artists. It's not the first time that Marvel has tried to spotlight, you know, for those who have been diehard comic book fans uh, for a while. Uh, there used to be a program called Marvel Young Guns. Um, yes. You know, but Stormbreakers is what, about two years old now? Yeah, about about two years old. And uh, quite frankly, we see the Stormbreaker program as the evolution of the Young Guns program. All of the previous Young Guns, and there are many, and we're really proud of the Young Guns program. There, there are a lot of legendary artists that came through that program, and, and we're hoping to do the same with Stormbreakers. Honestly, even though the program is only two years old, there have been some incredible artists like Peach Momoko, Natasha Bustos, Joshua Kassara, Juan Cabal. Like, you know, talk to me about how these, how the class, because that's really what it's called, how the class yeah, of Stormbreakers is chosen. We're looking for artists that, that have a, a style and a look to their art that is dynamic. Obviously, aside from all of the need-to-haves of a, a sequential artist, um, you know, being storytelling, composition, fundamentals like perspective and good anatomy and face face work for those dialogue heavy scenes more than any of those things having an artistic uh an artistic style that feels energetic feels dynamic feels special uh those are some of the key ingredients for what we look for in a stormbreaker um obviously uh stylistically speaking Every style is not meant for comics. Um, and Every style isn't meant for a certain type of comics. Ex exactly. Um, so, you know, there is that that we take into account. You may have a really cool off-the-wall style, but, you know, if it's, if it's something that we're not going to be able to spotlight through what we do, then we're not really serving uh, you or the business. Those are some of the things that, that we take into account. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like being a stormbreaker does have the intent of doing a little something for the career of up-and-coming artists. Yeah, and I'll also say that outside of the publishing group, 
again, with my work or through my work with all the other Marvel lines of business, I'm able to connect the Stormbreakers with some of our partners, you know, so if it makes sense for a Stormbreaker to work with uh, the games team or work with uh, Disney on a number of different programs that they're doing, I'll be sure to do that because, again, you know, if we're raising your profile on the publishing side and we're able to also do so in a way that will put you in front of audiences that our partners are reaching, it only makes sense. And uh, it, it is, quite frankly, it's meant to just show artists all the different things that Marvel can do for you. Okay, so before I start geeking out, I, I got to ask, um, I hear um, that there's going to be a new class of Stormbreakers coming out in 2022. I know you can't say much, but like, can you say anything? What can I say? Uh, what I can say is we are very excited to continue the Stormbreaker program. And that uh, I think everyone should continue paying attention to uh, announcements. I love that. And this season, season six's theme is international and international influences. Uh, sure. Can we look forward to seeing any more international artists on the Stormbreaker list? I'll say absolutely. Absolutely. We are always uh, looking for new talent uh, wherever they may be. Um, wherever in the world they may be. So uh, I think it is absolutely uh, fair to uh, presume that there will be people coming from uh, some interesting places uh, in the next Stormbreaker class. Thank you so much, John Michael. Thank you for having me. This is always a lot of fun and uh, we must do it again. We, we have to find other uh, nerdy corners uh, to explore. Oh, yes. I am really looking forward to meeting all of those talented artists. All right, y'all. Like, I don't know if you can tell how much I was geeking over this. Like, I am just so happy that Janice Chang is now a part of the Marvel's Voices family, that we got this amazing chance to interview her because she has worked on so many incredible books. Like, listen to this again, then go check out the excerpt from Marvel's Voices Identity 2022, but then go look at all the incredible books and characters and writers that Janice Chang has worked with across the comics industry. You will not be sorry. Next week, we're going to be talking to some more brilliance and we're going to be jumping right in with our first creator-led conversation with guest host, writer, and superfan Tochi Onyebuche, who has also been a guest on Marvel's Voices. He will be chatting it up with Nigerian artist and writer team Doton Akande and Mira Ayodele, who have done some incredible work with Moon Knight, Black, White, and Red, and they may be uh, chatting about some of their future projects. So you are not going to want to miss it. Marvel's Voices is produced by Isabel Robertson, Cara McGurk-Allison, and me, Angelique Rocher. 
Our senior manager of audio production and development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen, and our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamau Wainaina.